I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Welcome back, everyone. This is my first recording of 2024, a very essential, no pun intended, conversation for me because 2023 has been a bit of hoarding. I moved to a new place and I traveled so much because of the noise that happened around AI last year that by the end of the year, when I retreated back home, uh, I realized I had so much in my life that I really didn't want. I need less. And uh, for those of you who have been part of my membership, uh, Unstressable, we were discussing at the beginning of the year, the, you know, the webinar around New Year's uh, intentions and the theme of my year. So of course, my intention for the year is peace. I'm trying to find peace with everything that's happening in the world, peace with my achievements so that I don't kill myself trying to achieve more and really, really peace with the pace at which I'm going. And the theme that I chose for the year was less. I need to have less. I need to do less. And my guest today is the boss on the topic, totally the boss on the topic, Greg McEwen, who published two books, uh, both uh, New York Times bestsellers, uh, Essentialism and Effortless. One is to uh, teach us that less truly is more, and the other is to teach us to focus on on doing what matters, really, not doing too much, but doing only what, you know, enriches our lives. Uh, he is also the host of a wonderful podcast that I have been a guest on. So go look for my episode there, the Greg McEwen podcast. And uh, truly an, an incredible thinker that I think makes a big difference. One that is essential for the start of my year before you guys walked in. I actually think we'll probably keep that bit uh, where we were chatting before you walked in, uh, we um, we interrupted our conversation just to uh, introduce Greg, and um, we were talking about books and uh, how many books he has behind him, how many books I have behind me, and we were wondering what makes a book uh, a success, a classic. And I said I have a theory. So uh, my theory for Greg to shred it. It's interestingly that books are a business of marketing. Bestsellers, interestingly, do not always happen because they're amazing. Uh, they happen because they're marketed really well. Because when you buy a book in the first week or the first few weeks of its, of the, of its publications, it's because you heard about it, because it was in the uh, newspapers and TV and so on. It's only those books that last the test of time, that over time keep selling more, that I believe succeed because they touched the reader somehow. So they recommended it to three more readers who recommended it to seven. And Greg's books combined sold more than two million copies. I am uh, I am humbled uh, because I think mine uh, combined sold probably 800,000 or something. So I will get to you one day, Greg. But yeah, it's but, but, but way most, most of them are word of mouth. That's, uh, that's my view. Uh, that's my theory. What do you think? Well, I mean, that... In, in a sense, what you just said, like, has to be true. So it is the net promoter score 
even though we wouldn't use that language in any sort yeah. of ancient text or anything. But of course, it's whether people share and say, this is a book you should read. And, and over time, you know, over, let's say, you know, the Lindy effect suggests it's a, that the longer a book is in print, the longer it will be in print. So that's one mechanism for saying, for trying to think through which books survive. Mm. Uh, so, so the longer you have survived, the longer you will survive. That seems to be pretty consistent in the, in the publishing industry. But it misses the heart of the question because the idea that, yes, the books that survive are the ones that people recommend, of course, must be true. But what the criteria is in each in each era for what books get recommended, it's not like anybody mm. gets together and has like a, a formal process. Now, I, I, there's nothing wrong with this other than other than it's a a mystery to some extent why we have the classics become the classics. Yes, it's because people think they're classics, but. What's the real decision-making process? And and to give this a little bit of an interesting edge, I think, I just spent a year at the University of Cambridge inadvertently, was accepted into a doctoral program there. And I mean, I don't know, we're sort of, maybe we're on subject, maybe we're off subject, but, the, but I went to a, a library training there where somebody said in passing, well, listen, you know, we're introducing everybody that's, that's, that's organizing the library right now. And they said, well, this person here is in charge of the decolonization of the library. And I thought, I didn't talk about it at the time. I didn't raise my hand or, or, or challenge or anything. I, but I, I just wondered about that. I sort of thought, well, what's the criteria now? What, what, how, what, mm -hmm. That's an interesting role to take. And yeah. I'm not making a political point. It's just a, this is decision criteria. This is how does a single person go about selecting by a set of criteria that they must be have identified mm. which books should be there and which shouldn't after a millennia of a process we barely understand has right. crafted and curated these classics? I don't know who this person is. I don't know what their qualification is. I certainly don't know their criteria, or maybe I could estimate it from what they said, but there's something about that that is uneasy for me. We need a collective, there's a collective process that follows in, in the selection of books. And I, I, for one, want myself, my children and grandchildren to have access to simply the best thinking as people think it was over a long period of time. That's what I want them to have access to, the, the, the best thinking possible through this kind of ambiguous process. I think this applies very firmly to our uh, approach to life in general, right? I mean, in a, in a very interesting way, that selection criteria of what has more worse and what mm. has less worse is probably, when I was uh, told by Todora, my producer, that we're going to be talking, I was like, yes, I need to ask him that question because it's quite interesting that, mm. first of all, some of us, by definition, uh, are hoarders, even if they have nothing, right? And mm. some of us, by definition, are sort of aspiring minimalists, even if they're drowning in things, right? Uh, I, you know, as I said, at the end of last year, I realized that I'm the latter. It's it's not like my, my home is a, is a mess, but, you know, I, I used to, when I didn't travel as often, I used to, every Saturday, give 10 things away, 
right? So I would well, look through my home and every Saturday I would give 10 things away, but I counted the number of Saturdays that I wasn't around. And I have to admit, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know I, I think my biggest bug last year is because I was setting up a home and I had yes, so few days, yeah, so few days at home, I ended up ordering too much from online places, right? So so I would go like, <laughs> I only have three days in Dubai. I, you know, I am in London now. I need to get something to arrive to me before I leave. And then I order it and then, you know, it's not perfect. I don't have time to return it and so on. So I'm working through this. But what do you think makes some of us want to keep more and some of us burdened by more? Mm. Oh, there's so many, there's so many things to unpack in what you just shared, as well as trying to answer your question. Let's do this. Let's just give a quick summary of essentialism for those that are new to it, so that we ground ourselves in that, because I'm already down this path of, of, the, of the books and all of those things. And I think they can all come together beautifully in answering your question too. So, so look, essentialism is the disciplined pursuit of less. It is exploring what is essential, eliminating what is non-essential, and making systems in your life that make it as effortless as possible to then execute on what matters most, on what remains. Yeah. And that's an ongoing process. So it, it's a disciplined pursuit. So this is a summary of essentialism. And, and as you rightly say, it can be applied across the board, across physical things, and also across the commitments in our lives and right. what we give our time to. Yeah. And so, so, you know, coming to this question of why do we hold on to more or why do we want to eliminate more? I mean, I think it's all about attachment and, and there's, a, there's a range of attachment. You know, I, I have, for example, one of my children feels really emotionally attached to almost anything that, that comes into her life. Any, any little thing she can feel, it's almost like she has a, I mean, she's, she's extremely sensitive to, to animals, for example, almost like a, yeah. a Dr. Doolittle. Uh, mm. I mean, I'm a, she has literally brought home baby squirrels before that are injured. And like she, she <laughs> notices everywhere. No, she's extraordinary. And, and I feel like that a similar thing goes on with the things in her life. So she feels attachment to them. And so it's almost like things become personified for her. That, and so the idea of getting rid of things, she can do it, but it's a much more emotional process than it is for me. And so I think it's to do with, it's your attachment to things. And I don't see it, by the way, as inherently good or bad to be attached. I mean, you could you could take essentialism to a place that's that it's no longer essentialism by just becoming so detached that you say no to everything and eliminate everything from your life. And sometimes you see people doing this when maybe when their spouse has, has died or something, and then and and then they just get rid of everything. They purge everything. And suddenly they've thrown out all of the photographs and all of the things that really do actually matter and would matter for generations. They're just expunging everything, purging everything. Well, that's not a very helpful place. That would be like that would be like some something called noism. And that's mm -hmm. very different from what I'm suggesting with essentialism. So I think that it's, it's what we want is to be able to not be tricked. And there are, there are a series of heuristics that exist in our minds that can trick us in our selection process. So one of them is the endowment effect, and that suggests that we value things more simply because we own them. 
and and so with my daughter that's very strong for some people they they as i say they could maybe do with a bit more attachment and connection and understanding why something could matter for generations after them you know so there could be growth on both ends uh, but the but but the endowment effect is a generally positive heuristic it means we we look after a home we own Mm. It explains why nobody in the history of the whole world has ever, rent, you know, washed their own rental car. You, you don't own it. You don't value <laughs> it in the same way. And so what we want is not to be tricked. How do we avoid the trick of the endowment effect? We might say, how much would I, would I buy this item again now if I didn't own it? So we release ourselves of the pressure of ownership and say, well, would I go and get it? And if, would I take the time to get it? Would I pay the money to get it? Or do I only value it simply because it already belongs to me? And, and that's a very helpful heuristic, both in physical elimination, but also in commitments. Hold on, because honestly, as you were saying this, like a zillion items in my head were like, mm. no, I mm. wouldn't. But the reason why I do this is because I despise waste. But but that uh, you're going to be my therapist. Oh my God, I am exposing myself here. <laughs> so 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 in, in a very in a I'll I'll give you a very good example. I mean, I'm a I'm a very good handyman. Like I, I I'm a very good carpenter. Mm. I do mosaics. I do anything with my hands. I do very well. And so I, I love my, my place, tools. Man. I need you in my place, Mo. <laughs> yes, absolutely. We can Did help each other out. Plumbing, I do very well, but it annoys me. So let's not do plumbing. <laughs> <laughs> but like when I look at my tools, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, even my supplies, like, you know, certain screws or certain nuts and bolts or whatever, I keep them for decades because I, I say, why throw them away? I'm eventually right. going to need them, right? Uh, and, and in reality, I never need them. And whenever I need them, I try to search for them. I don't find them. So I rush to the hardware store and get new right. ones, right? And, and so the attachment here in my mind is just simply because they're there and I don't want to waste them. You know, is that a bad thing? Oh, well, it, none of this, I think, is really about simple good and bad. It's mm. about selecting what is useful for us now so that we can make the highest contribution now and in the future. So it's it, it's a it's a selection between a good, like maybe good, better and best, as mm. is a language that, uh, that, that is a, in a talk of the same name, an excellent talk by uh, Dallin Oaks uh, that says that's a criteria between... You know, it's not just bad and great. It's all that middle stuff we have to also mm. select. And, and so let's, let's take your example of these tools and, and the, the screws particularly. So for, for anybody listening or watching this, you know, maybe, maybe their thing isn't tools, but we all have a closet and most people's closets get overstuffed over time. Yeah. And there's this moment, it's a sort of magical moment, almost a mysterious moment anywhere where somebody gets, they're fed up with the state of affairs, they go into the closet, they take an item off the shelf as if to get rid of this thing finally. And in that moment of taking it off the shelf, that's the mysterious moment. They look at it and they think, well, just like you with the screws, well, and you already articulated, but I want to underscore it. There is a selection criteria being used there. And, and the, 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 Criteria, the default criteria for most people is, could I ever use this possibly in the future? Maybe. Mm. And that's so broad, that is, the answer to that question has to be yes. 
It is possible. Exactly. Possible. It's like I have this one little diaper uh, that you know is still clean from when Aya was one year old, and you know, who knows? Like maybe somebody will visit me and they'll have a child, and you know, I'm I'm joking, but you know, that's that's if you open it up, there's always a yes. Right. And so and so what we're what we're ex hopefully examining here is that there is a decision process taking place. Yeah. And there is a criteria being used. And most of the time, criteria is invisible to us. And so we're just living our life, making decisions, however we make them. But as we start to get below, like the iceberg, the iceberg at the top, that's the actual decision. But how are we making it? And how are we thinking about it? Underneath, we discover well, my goodness, that criteria is so broad, we will never say no to anything. Right. Look, if somebody's happy with the way they're making decisions, like if if you're happy with the state of affairs with your with your screws, with your with your tools, great. I mean, you don't have to change just because there's a, a different way of making decisions. But if people start to feel overwhelmed with the screws of their life, overwhelmed with the closet that's overpacked, or of course, this is all metaphorical for the the commitments we make and the over commitments we make and the too many things we do if people start to feel the effects of non-essentialist decision making then it's time to look under the surface of the water to the iceberg below and to say well what criteria do i currently use and what would i ideally use if i could select it thoughtfully so so somebody might say they might say well, have I used this item of clothing or this item, this this group? Have I used it in the last, well, for you, the last five years? Okay, if the answer is no, maybe you eliminate everything that you haven't used over five years. And, and, and somebody is closet, they could say that even more extreme. They could say, okay, in the last year, have I worn this? You know, they could use the question, do I love it? Is it, you know, the, the Marie Kondo question, does it spark joy? Mm. And goal, I suppose, of essentialism is something like, can we, use selection criteria that are more extreme than the norm of our time so that we can discern between the essential and the merely good or the merely, well, I already own it, therefore I keep it criteria. So that so that you shift it. I mean, I sometimes use the idea of the 90% rule as a, as a rule of thumb. You say, we want only those things that are 10% or above important that is the essential, the very important, so that there is room to utilize those things and invest in those things. Because whether we're talking about the closet that gets too full, there's a limited amount of space, or more importantly, the closet of our lives in which we have this pathetically short amount of time on earth, this just mm. truly minuscule moment my hypothesis and position is that we have enough to do in the 90% and above activities to fill the remainder of our lives. Mm. And therefore, every time we say yes to something that is simply good, like a 60% item, or you know, every time I get distracted on social media, which is like a 10%, it's like not important, it's unimportant, I am robbing myself from the time for what is truly essential. And that, I think, is something like the burden of life, that, that, that you can't make a trade-off free choice. 
And it's also the magic of life too, because once you embrace it, which essentialists do, they don't just acknowledge the reality of trade-offs, they embrace it. They're, 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 they, in a way, an essentialist, we become, we learn to love it because mm -hmm. we suddenly say, my goodness, look at the influence I can have on my life. Look at what I can design. I literally can design through trade-offs a life that really matters in the same way as I can select the clothes in my closet to the point where everything in there sparks joy for me and really fits and works. And I, and there's something uh, almost ritualistic in a good way of going into it and feeling that sense of selection and choice. A life similarly, it's a bit more messy in life, but similarly we go, no, I can make trade-offs deliberately and, and increase the probability significantly that when I get to the end of my life, I will be able to say, I did what mattered. I can't even tell you how well that landed with me. I mean, in a very interesting way, we, you know, we all love the Marie Kondo question of does it give you joy, right? But the question really is, yeah, in a way, everything gives me a tiny, minuscule, like tiny bit of joy, right? And, and when you say, no, no, hold on, you want the 10% that matter. Okay. Mm. And, and it's, it's not just joy, but matter here is I meet 10,000 people a year, right? But of all of them with all my love and respect for people who read my work or, you know, who wants, want to, to do a project together or whatever, I'd probably say, Aya, my daughter is number one, Hannah, my wife is number one. And, you know, somewhere if you rank them all up in the 10%, there could be like, you know, a few very close friends, my, my ex-wife, my mother, my brothers, and so on and so forth, which are really all together will add up, not in, in you know, being a thousand people, but, you know, it could be like 10 people that are really the, 10 per, the top 10% of my life, right? And, yes. and it's quite interesting because when you were talking about swiping on Instagram and I, I don't swipe on Instagram, I, I respond to DMs on Instagram mm. and I love it because it gives me a very deep connection to, uh, you know, people who read my work or listen to a podcast or whatever. But, but with all the love and respect for those who are listening, that takes away from my daughter's time, right? And it's such an interesting criteria when you say, hold on, there is a line and you have to know what's above the line and you have to know what's below the line. And you may allow what's below the line every now and then, but that shouldn't be the way you live. That's such an interesting criteria. So a few years ago, Eve, who I was just talking about, the Dr. Doolittle, she turned 14 and, and, and like to give a little more description of Eve, I mean, she's always climbing the tallest trees she can find. She's always <laughs> out running barefoot outside, naming the chickens, uh, you know, catching lizards, releasing them gently. Oh God, she, speaks, she speaks constantly a flow of words. I mean, she's read maybe, I don't know, two, 250 books as a, as a teenager at this point and, and, and just so voluminous in her language. And, and it's, it's, she can't stay angry for a second, all of this. Okay, so then she turns 14. And, and instead of, you know, if you say, well, how are you? Instead of a whole flow of things, it's sort of one word answers and, when she's doing a chores, uh, she was assigned to sweep the floor and she was sweeping the floor but really slowly. And I was like, you know, what's going on here? And, and she seemed a little more physically awkward. And, you know, and Anna and I, my wife and I, we were like, well, it's probably pretty age appropriate behavior. We're not alarmists. And we're like, okay, let's just proceed. And, and then we took Eve to a, a routine physical therapy appointment and she failed a reflex test, which, you know, you don't have to be a, a, a doctor to sort of know that 
you know, the body is designed not to be able to fail a reflex test, right? Like that's mm. why mm. we do the reflex test. And so the physical therapist and her side and said, look, I would just recommend that you go and see a, a neurologist. And we didn't have to be told twice, you know. And so what began there was not just a, a, a series of trips to neurologists, although that is what happened. There also that was sort of a tipping point moment anyway in in what I can only describe as a free fall in human uh, capabilities. So uh, so 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 there was this just serious free fall in executive function, like the control of executive function and her physical, manipulation so mm -hmm. so the whole right hand side of her body slowed down so that it moved at a different pace to her left hand side it took her literally hours to finish a meal literally hours and i remember you know she would write a journal every night and like almost irritatingly to be frank because it was like time for sleep and she would just be still writing and still writing and then and then i remember the last time i had her travel with me on a flight. I take one of my children with me about 80% of the time when I travel for keynotes and so on. And, and so she came with me. And the last time she came on a flight, I have a recording of her writing her name because it took her two minutes to write Eve McEwen, oh, wow. took her 45 seconds to write the last three letters of McEwen. And, you know, if you ever try to write that slowly, it's almost impossible. I mean, this is and then in the midst of all of this, every test comes back in the normal range. And so she is free falling towards a coma and dying. And I remember a neurologist 35 years in his field um, and, a, and a kind man too. And he just looks at us and he just shrugs his shoulders. He's like, look, I, I don't know, you know, I don't know what to tell you. And, and in the midst of that, right, like that is the stuff suffering is made of, you know, and I, Mm -hmm. I learned so many lessons from it, and I wish there was like a single thesis statement for the whole thing. I, I don't have one, but a, a couple of the things that I learned, uh, one is that I now have come to believe that suffering is universal. I think that almost everybody is suffering almost all of the time. That's the first thing I've learned. And the reason we don't know that is because we don't know people well enough or it's not safe enough, and so they're not sharing. And maybe life couldn't function if everyone was sharing everything deep all the time, but still it's there and it's real. A second thing I learned is that I everything I'd ever been taught about gratitude was wrong. And that was interesting to me because I'd spent a lot of time in gratitude and keeping a gratitude journal every day, probably for the last, oh, I don't know, I think it's coming up on 13 years without missing a day, you know, like, so it's not like I'm, it's not like I'm brand new to the idea of gratitude, but Everything I'd been taught was the following, and, and I bet you have been, and I bet everybody listening or watching this has been too, and they've been taught that gratitude is to be thankful for the good things in their lives. And that's wrong. It's wrong because that's not the definition of gratitude, literally, even though that's what we all say. If you look up the definition in a dictionary, which I didn't at the time, but I have done since, that's not what it is. But what I learned without the dictionary was that the gratitude is being thankful for everything in life. And that's not the same thing. So in the midst of the suffering, to be able to say, you know, I am thankful that Eve is suffering with a undiagnosed neurological condition that is stealing her picture of health 
because <laughs> and to leave a space open for why that might be, you know, that will stick in your throat. And, and of course, that's the point. That's why gratitude is unbelievable. It's an unbelievable thing. I call it radical gratitude now, but it's actually just gratitude. I just have to name, name it because we all think we know what it is. And, and so what happened in that moment, being able to do that, is that it opened up the possibility. And we've heard this phrase before, but this idea that maybe this is not happening to us or even to Eve, but happening for us and for Eve and that changes your state immediately because, you know, that's what you've got. You've got suffering or you've got purpose, that there's meaning. And that's it. I don't think there's another choice. You, 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 that's your choice in every moment. And, and that had a material advantage because it helped us to, as Joseph Conrad wrote in The Heart of Darkness, to remove one's wavering foot over the cliff. And we were able to sort of remove our wavering foot over the cliff of, of, of that suffering or, or hopelessness and, and imagine that there was meaning in this. And that state allowed us to make better decisions and to not be so consumed with any of the rabbit holes we were going down. And that led to the meeting of the one person, uh, I, I don't know, the one person that could possibly have done anything about it, which was a, a researcher in, in, in child um, movement disorders who had a nine-month waiting list he suddenly freed up a month went by and we were able to meet with him. And it only occurred to me literally last week, this very specific part of the story that I'm sharing here that, so he, so he comes into the room with a whole team of people. They analyze her, they read all of their, you know, they, I think they've already read her reports, but quickly reviewing them. And, and he did something. He said, okay, take this medicine. We're going to, we're going to treat you right now. Like micro treatment, take this dopamine go to have lunch, come back. When she came back, he did another test. We saw no difference. This is what's amazing to me. Now, I, I knew part of this story, but what he observed was that the blinking of her eyes was a different pace. Oh my God. Tiny micro difference improved speed from an hour before. And this is the thing that hadn't occurred to me, this like literal idea, like for the blink of an eye, she mm. would fall into a coma and died. And and then the plot thickens a little because he suggested immediate hospitalization, which she was immediately hospitalized, but the treating physician did not believe that she had encephalitis, which is what he was now hypothesizing, and would rather have treated her for a genetic condition, which means managing her death. And so that the whole time he was saying that, and even when we finally saw micro improvements ourselves for the first time in months, he still didn't buy it. And so if he'd had that decision-making power, he would have shifted the, the treatment. And, and I, I really rather suspect she, she would have died. So it's been years now, and she is back, and she is whole again, and she's well again at the time of this conversation. And all of this to say the following, I know I've shared a few sort of thesis things because I've learned more than one thing from the lesson, but one of them is this. Well, I dropped her off recently for a mission for a year and a half in Brazil. It's not high risk now in terms of her health is, is stabilized and more than stabilized. But as I drop her off, I have this kind of essentialist judgment day. I don't know. I don't know if to have a better term, but I could see her whole life flash before my eyes. I thought it was going to be a happy moment sending her off because it's such a good and positive thing. It was not for me. It's extremely painful for about, I don't know, about an hour, extremely painful, much more than I expected. And I, I had this sort of, this 
sense of everything that had happened and that it was done now, not my parenting, but her childhood is done and all the suffering she went through and all the experiences we went through. And I thought, did I miss it? Did I miss wow. it or did I, was I there for it? Did I, did I, did I get it or did I, did I not get it? And to what extent did I get it or not get it? And I came out of that feeling relieved from the pain because I was like, no, we were there and I was there for it. And we traveled together and we made memories together and we invested together. But my goodness, what if this moment I was suddenly realizing I had missed it? What would that mean in this moment? And the other thing, the final thing I learned in that, you know, this crescendo experience of learning is, is that life is not divided into relationships of 1x, 2x, and 3x. They're divided into relationships of 1x and 10x and 100x and 1,000x. And my relationship with my wife, Anna, and with my children, these are the 1,000x relationships. Now, there are 100x and there are 10x, and all the x's have a place. And they all, because all people matter, people are certainly the, the primary criteria to evaluate other decisions in life. Relationships are the very point of life. So there's things that are less than one X important, right? Like all the, so maybe the social media or maybe just, uh, just worrying or I don't know, any number of things that you could say are, are truly non-essential. But there are a few things that are exponentially more important. They are the thousand Xs and they are the test to me of, of, of like life itself. Can I live in such a way that I can have deep quality and quantity experiences that are emotionally connected, deeply uh, close, safely attached. This, to me, is as close to the test of life as I have been able to uh, imagine or articulate. That's really the final lesson that, 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 that the experience with Eve taught me. I, uh, I'm speechless. I really am speechless. I mean, my... My, my my job as a podcaster is to listen to you and always in the back of my mind think what the next question is going to be. I didn't. Mm -hmm. Because I, I honestly feel that this was a thousand X conversation. I mean, if you compare to my experience when losing Ali, there were two phases, two stages to losing Ali. One, one was when we knew that something went wrong, mm -hmm. but didn't know what was going to happen. And then when we were told he was not going to make it and, mm -hmm. and, and quite interestingly, it was harder when we didn't, I mean, I think most people know mm -hmm. by now that both me and my ex and my daughter and all, all of us as a family, we have a very clear definition of death that doesn't believe that Ali is in a bad place, but that wasn't it because we still miss him. We still want him in our life. He was really the pillar of our life, but yes. that struggle of of not knowing where he was going, what he, you know, what will happen was probably the toughest, you know, 10 hours of my life. And, and you had to go through that for years that the, the interesting, my God, you hit my heart when you said, did I miss it? Mm. Because you know what, when, when you're, you know, I, I hope Eve will be a grandma and you, you mm. will hug her when you're in your eighties and she will be wonderful all her life. When Ali left, when you lose him, you hate what you missed, right? Mm. So, so I remember vividly Nibel, our, my ex, uh, sitting next to me uh, around a week or so after Ali died and, and she was holding a photo album 
and mm. she flipped through the photo album and looked at him as an infant and and said mm. he was so calm and peaceful never really cried the 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 joy of you know of of any child or any infant i've ever seen but then he died she said and and i i thought she was referring to then he died because he died and and then you know you go through the albums and then she starts to look at his pictures when he was seven and we were at disney and you know he was so much fun and so kind and always held his sister and you know very loving and and she was like what a wonderful child she you know remembered how his uh, uh kindergarten and and grade one teacher used to when we would pick him up she would say he's so respectable and you know mm -hmm. which six-year-old is respectable right <laughs> but 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 that was ali and and you know she recites that and then she says and then he died right then he looks at his she looks at his pictures when he was 12 and then his pictures when he was 16 and you know when he was when he had his band and was so successful and so loved by everyone and then she said and then he died and and i suddenly realized that she was talking about each of them that mm -hmm. each of them died, right? You know, you, you get your, your child as an infant for a couple of years, you get them, you know, struggling with words for a year, you get them, you know, every phase doesn't last and then they leave and 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 do you miss it? But but what really hit my heart, Greg, is that is that I know the feeling of did I miss him? Did I miss mm -hmm. part of that because he left? Mm -hmm. But you're talking about the feeling of did I miss it? even through the suffering now that she stayed and and that's so that's almost enlightenment if you ask me i mean this is truly mm -hmm. i always compare life to video games and i say the whole idea is to live fully through the game it doesn't matter if you win the level or not mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. you know 40 minutes later if you've missed the game and still won the level what was the point right mm -hmm. and and this hit me so hard and the idea of you exponentially saying it's 1x 10x 100x and 1000x that will remain in my heart forever because that's really the way to look at it because truly and honestly there are relationships that are 1000x uh, you know yes. and, and 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 there are there are relationships that are 100 and 100 is so big compared to the one right but but the thousand is so big compared to the hundred, and I think I I don't know I I I really think what you just did is you you changed my life forever. This truly is what I've been looking for to to drop all of the endless things that I have been doing and and honestly not savoring not not you know not fully being in them just doing them because I have to do them. Mo, what you just shared is so beautiful. And I knew coming into this conversation about about Ali and and so to share that and to make that connection itself is powerful. And you went beyond that too. That idea of each moment, each phase of of a child's life, for example, dying is so real. And I think that is exactly what the pain was in that moment. Is you know, I, I said to her, we were all in the car driving as we were about to drop her off. And that's when the, I suddenly just felt very emotional. And I don't cry very much as a, maybe because I grew up in England. It's just, I don't know if that's why. I, but but, but, but I, I just couldn't help it at all through this whole period. And, and I said to her out loud, I'm like, Eve, this is utterly ridiculous that we're dropping you off right now. Aren't you still three? 
you know, aren't, aren't you still three mm. women in that one dress that you would never, you just wore every day, every day, every day was your go-to dress. Aren't you still 10? Aren't you still, aren't you still sick? Aren't, aren't you still 14 and 15 and 16? And, and, and I really could feel that it was so peculiar, so painful to think she isn't that anymore. And that is done. And now that doesn't mean that, you know, I, I can't miss the next phase. It's, it's not missing the next piece, of course, is the, is the therefore what, but, but you've helped to help to thin slice what it is that, that we're mourning in that moment, what it is we, it is done, whether we missed it or not, not those moments are gone now. And, and what I think was, what I think is beautiful about this conversation is, is something like this, like, so, so there's lots of things that are important. And, and, and these things, a few things that are a thousand X, these few relationships and all of that is true. And, and I, and I would add to that, like another criteria, which is what matters most is what lasts longest. I think that's another way of thinking about evaluative criteria. It's like the Lindy effect that we started with, with books, but applied to relationships like that, which lasts longest and nothing lasts longer than the intergenerational family, like nothing cities, cities last longer than countries, generally speaking, uh, countries last longer than companies, but companies long, last longer than houses most of the time, but family is intergenerational. It's, it's way, way more resilient, way more resilient than cities and countries. And so like that's, suggests where where things are most important but i think one can say and i don't think it's just a semantic idea that what matters most of all is what happens next mm. and and i think there's something really deep in that for us which is you know so for you and for i right, we've made the choices we've made and of course even though i concluded that in my test in dropping off eve that i had spent more time on what mattered than I got it right more often than not, that I hadn't missed it. That doesn't mean I never missed it. It doesn't mean I got it right all the time. Of course, that's not true. I mean, I, I, I'm off track all the time. And it's if I'm doing anything right, it's that I am evaluating it more often than the average person may be so that I get back on track a little faster. So like that's the like I think there's sort of two kinds of people in life. There are people who are lost and there are people who know they are lost. And mm. it's how quick can you get into the I know I'm lost phase so that you know what to do about it. My father, my father never knew he could get lost anywhere. And I have, he gave me that gift, um, sort of directionally challenged. And, but I remember distinctly as a child that he would, we would be lost and he would say, I, I feel it. I feel it's down here. And I learned that he didn't feel, I don't know what he felt. But he was <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't trust that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, and so, but, but of course the thing is, as soon as you admit you're lost, you know what to do. You know exactly what to do. If you're lost, you stop, you ask directions pre-GPS. GPS, okay, you stop and you put the directions in. In our lives, it's, it's also true. As soon as you admit you're lost, you go, okay, let me sit down and think. Let me, it might not be easy to do, but let me ponder it. Let me, let me look at my life. Let me, let me pray. Let me meditate. Let me examine. You know, we know what to do if we admit it. Now, all of that back to this idea that what matters most is what happens next. It's this, it's like everybody listening, you and I included, all of us. We have some regrets. We have things we ought to do differently. The gift 
is this next moment. Yeah. We get to choose again. We get yeah. to choose now. Yeah, we can't change the past. That is true. But I tell you something that's so profound to me. It, this, is, this is deep, man, is that we cannot change the past, but we can change the meaning of the past. And if you can change the meaning of the past, I don't know what the difference is between that and changing the past. I literally don't know what the difference is. The meaning is what ascribes, like if you read a book and the whole story goes one way and then the next chapter changes everything and the person you thought was good was bad or the person you thought was bad was good, you know, some everything changes before as well. The whole story changes. And so it's what you do next that matters most. Whatever people have lost, whatever people, whatever errors people have made, whatever trade-offs we've made towards the non-essential, let's say, or that we've underinvested in the most important relationships in our lives, which is likely to be the case. It's what we do now, next. What do we do in the next moment? The, the, the now has been measured. It's like been measured. It used to just be sort of a philosophical idea. We all live in the now, but but now has been measured in a variety of ways and in, in, in by psychologists, not least of all. And they found that there is a sort of neurological measurement to it. And it's about between two and three seconds long. Like that's what we mean when we say now. And, and so we all live in this perpetual two to three second moment mm -hmm. where we have memories and so on that the conjurer sense that there's that the time moves forward and is long and, and, and all of this, but we live in this micro thing and, 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 and what do we do now, right yeah. now? How yeah. can we make a new trade-off? How can we start a new life? And that, and that is, to me, an empowering part of this, this story. I think this is profound in every possible way. Also, by the way, I think it's profound when you said you can change the meaning of the past. I, again, mm. on, on Ali's story, and I know it sounds, it sounds almost as if I'm trying to tell myself something to, to feel better about it. But, but think about it this way. I know for a fact that Ali left our world to trigger me to do what I did with my life, right? I know that for a fact, but it's not a fact. It is not. I mean, when you really, really think about it, I could say Ali left our world to torture me or Ali left our world because the surgeon made a mistake, right? But in, in at the end of Soul for Happy, I, I basically said, when nothing is certain and nothing ever is, you might as well choose what makes you happy, right? There is really no way you can put this through the scientific method and tell yourself, no, by the way, through mathematics and, 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 you know, scientific proof, it turns out that Ali did not leave to launch me on my mission, which helped millions, tens of millions of people find happiness. Right. Mm. But there is also no way you can scientifically prove otherwise, right? You can, you cannot prove for or against it. So you might as well look back at the past. Like you look back at Eve's story and, and you say, Gratitude is to accept all of life, all of mm. life, including the struggle, the suffering, the joy, the, the brief moments when there was chocolate and that, you know, small moment when you bit the, uh, you know, the pit of the, of the uh, olive and it hurt your, your tooth, right? All mm. of them are experiences. All of them can mm. actually be interpreted into something I can be grateful for. Yes, because... Because this this is it, right? Like in that moment, in this now, it, it's 
it's it's meaning or suffering. Yeah. You know. Like, oh and, my and, God, that's so profound. Again, man, dropping those words. <laughs> in, 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 in the in, listen, people, everyone listening, please. In this moment, it's either meaning or suffering. That's so profound. If you're looking back at a negative experience, you can either find meaning in it or you'll just suffer. And and so, I, I mean, I do think in the sort of this in the final analysis, you have to you have to make up your mind. I don't know if it's even making up your mind. That's not quite right. You have to detect that there is meaning or you don't detect it and you will be left with suffering. Like those are the choices. Those are the preconditions. Now you can, you can deal with suffering in another way where you can, or you can try to, which is to numb it, you know, and that really, I think is, is ultimately the path of the non-essentialist. Like in, in, in a kind of extreme way, that's what the non-essentialist is doing, is they're saying, I can immediately numb the sense of suffering or the sense of being lost. I can just immediately, I mean, that's that's the, the promise, right? If I go onto YouTube, so let me be YouTube is my, is my uh, social media, uh, one of my social media vices, right? Is and, and the promise oh, is that you can go and immediately get something that's exactly through an algorithm has been designed to to be most uh, grasping to me, most immediately uh, consuming and not satisfying, not happy, not meaning, none of those things. But that's the promise of it. And so you can immediately alleviate your sense of suffering, at least pretend to, you know, distract yourself from it. And so that's that's sort of. That I still think is the path of suffering because it leads to what has been called, it's not my terminology, I can't remember who said it, but the dark playground. You, you know the whole time, this is not the way. You know this is, this, is, this is only keeping you from what you will find again as soon as you stop doing it. And, and so, and so I, I really do think it's sort of, it's, it's like this, that is the choice, right? And, and it's, pre it is pre how would you say this yeah i don't i don't mean predetermined like in, a, in an eternal predetermination sense like a, a, a like a, a religious terminology i just mean you know that there is something deeply in our biology and our psychology that means these are our choices suffering or meaning and so when i think about essentialism in this higher sense let me take the conversation here. I think about it. I think about how foolish so many of the philosophies of the last 40 or 50 years are. Um, I'm going deep into this right now, but like, let's riff on this. So, so we all, everybody listening knows Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If you've ever taken any introductory course to psychology or none, if you've ever written almost, read almost any book on psychology, anything, you've seen this hierarchy, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It, 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 it's utilized everywhere. And at the high, highest point of the hierarchy of needs, he wrote self-actualization, which is a little more than this, but it's pretty much achievement ethic. It's what do I individually want to achieve? And the thing that's interesting to me about that is that's wrong, is not the highest human need. But what's interesting is that that's what he thought. He thought that was wrong. 
So before he died, and it's, it's far less well known this, that, that before he died, he wrote a final book. And in the final book, he updated Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? So, so he changed what was at the top from self-actualization, like achievement ethic, to self-transcendence, which is, you know, it's all about living with a higher sense of purpose and meaning. And it's also embedded in there, the idea that you can become truly unified with somebody else. And that that is what you should aspire for, is, is deep, is actually like, he didn't use this language, but like I'm using it now, deep dependence in, in, in a relationship. And, and that that was the highest aspiration. And it just didn't get updated in any of the, any of the literature. And so the, he, the thing he's most famous for, he himself did not believe by the time he died. And, and the difference is not just this interesting anecdote about Maslow. It's that we have been taught to live independently and separately from each other. We've been taught that the, the language of psychology has emphasized the risks of codependency. Think of the language, codependency. You need each other too much, and that is the problem. Um, to, to, to become enmeshed in a relationship, that's not what you want. What you want is not to be dependent. You want to be independent. And if you ever get beyond that, it should be for interdependence, which is that I am fully whole myself, and you are fully whole, to your, whole, whole yourself. And so then together, we kind of cooperate in an almost corporate way, you know, that, that we have a win-win <laughs> together, and a, a sort of contractual relationship, and that somehow this is this is the heightened, highest level of maturity in a relationship. That is wrong. That is actually wrong. We, we have data, simultaneously data has been created, starting with Balbi, um, and, and he... I know that I'm riffing a long time on this now, but but forgive me. The, the, so, so Balby was an English, well, he was raised in, in, in a gentleman's home and in, 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 an Englishman, and he was allowed to eat dinner with his family once he turned 11 or 12. Well, not eat the whole meal. He was able to join them for dessert. And he was he went to a boarding school after that. And the reason that, like, the the, the, the norms of the gentleman class as it relates to children, was directly related to this kind of thinking about what makes a, a healthy, mature relationship. If you were emotionally connected with your child, you're going to raise namby-pamby children who can't cope in the world. Wow. And that affected not just behavior in families, but in policies too. If you were to drop off even a two or three-year-old child at a hospital, they would go in alone. You would leave them at the doors. If you were allowed to see them, it would be for one hour per week. And Balby became a psychologist eventually, and he was able to articulate what was wrong with all of this thinking. And he, he was the one that created attachment theory. But that attachment theory is also now, even after he died, has been researched. Perhaps a thousand items of, 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 of academic literature has been written on this and how it applies to adult relationships. He wasn't even alive to see that work. But what we know now is that this idea of independence or self-actualization is as wrong as it can be as it comes to actual happiness. What we need is to be, as not my term either, but effective dependence. How different that is than what we've been taught. We need to need each other. We need to know that we are needed. We need to know that someone will be there for us, emotionally connected, and that these things, there's like a crescendo of all these ideas, because that's what a thousand X relationship looks like 
That's how important it is, but then you need to invest so that you really can rely on each other through absolutely whatever comes. Greg McEwen, everyone, this is him. Listen to what this man is bringing. Incredible, honestly incredible. One of the most interesting debates I always have, Greg, is that sometimes we try, we identify a problem and we try to solve it by solving the wrong problem. Mm -hmm. That idea of when a couple is dependent and they become needy and jealous and when a child is dependent on the parent and the parent will th will think that 15 years from now this child is never going to be able to do anything on their own and so on the answer is no reject dependence while the actual problem has nothing to do with dependence the actual problem is if there's too much of something it's because of a symptom or a or a or a cause that's not in the core of the relationship, the core of the relationship of a child and a mother is dependence. This is how it's supposed to be, right? This is our, our you know, nature really. And for you to say it so bravely, it just begs the question, is your definition of essentialism then that this is all about human relationships? That, that none of the jobs that we chase, none of the money, none of the things that we buy, not even the experiences and the, and the you know, uh, trips that you can post on Instagram, you know, that what, what this is really all about, the most essential, the thousand X, if you compare across categories, is human connection. Uh, yeah, it is, but that's an evolution. I mean, it is inherent in essentialism. I mean, when you actually, if, if somebody reads the whole book and they were looking for that, they would find that that it, it, at any time that I'm giving an illustration of trade-off, that is that is how I would express the trade-off. I, I felt, I, I not fell short, I deliberately chose not to get too specific as to what I thought was essential because I thought, look, the, 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 that's sort of in the eye of, the reader to, to grapple with. But, but in the preceding years or the, or the years since writing Essentialism and, and the research and writing I'm doing now is explicitly on this. It is, well, let me summarize it this way. Like, let's say we live in the loneliest time in recorded history, which is, you know, true, right? The data isn't really ambiguous about this. Uh, and, it, and it's getting worse, right? We've digitized... <laughs> We've digitized the world on a promise that, that you can digitize everything that matters and, and it still works, right? It's like, the, it's like the line from the social network where the character playing Zuckerberg is saying, is saying, look at this, my goodness, I'm a social outcast at Harvard. I'm not socially savvy with people, but my goodness, if I digitize it all, then I can, then I can still be popular and cool and, and connect with everybody. And we even use that language. You know, we adopted the language of connection. Hey, uh, well, let's connect online. And as if it's the same thing, as if, and we know, I mean, it's not, not only is it not the same thing, and that doesn't mean there isn't a place for digital connection. I'm not a Luddite about this, but the idea that it can replace in, in that it's equal in quality to the relationship in our home. I mean, I just had on the podcast, I just had the, the president of Microsoft, Brad Smith, just on the podcast just recently. He wrote a book called Tools and Weapons. And he's sort of saying, look, technology can be a tool or a weapon, right? And at least he admits it because my experience in Silicon Valley for the last 15 years is that it's really rare that someone will because everyone's drinking the Kool-Aid of whatever company they're a part of. It's like, 
they only ever express the 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 asymmetric bet. This is all going to be upside, you know. And it's true yeah. for Google, it's true for Facebook, and it's true at Apple. And, it's, and I've worked with all of these companies and many times. And it's not like I think they don't do good, but the idea that there's no downside is so preposterous. And he said it this way: he said for like a hundred years, he said we've we have we have improved, made it easier to connect with people that live a long way from us at the expense of connecting people who live closest to us. And the idea that that trade-off is happening is self-evident once you hear someone express it. And and so and so when I I, I just think about this. N- non it's a non-neutral environment that we're living in and 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 i i have come again to hate my phone like i really just hate it i hate having it with me i don't want it and it's so complex because there are so many forms of utility that are embedded in it and good things and i use it for good things too but i just awakened to how seriously it disrupts the chance of that safe attachment, emotional connection, deeply rewarding relationships. It, it is, I think, actually anti that, as, that as aspiration. And so in order to try to increase the probability that I have that in my own home, I literally am putting my phone away far more and for hours at a time and just leave it. And it's just going to, we're going to, we've got to get to a life where those non-neutral actors play a very small role because they're not incentivized to help me achieve that goal at all. Uh, they're incentivized to have me consumed at the other end of the important 100%, spectrum. hundred percent. I mean, so, 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 so this, what, what does this mean to purpose in life that goes beyond human connection? Like listening to you teach me the, the exponential nature of relationships you know, it's it's a no-brainer that in my mind I'd probably put my daughter and Hannah and, you know, I'd put my mother and I put my, you know, close friends and so on. I'll put those in the thousand X. And, okay. you know, I'll, I'll put you in the 500 X because I really need to talk to you more. But, uh, but I love it, Mo. I love it. That's so yeah, kind. But, but, the, but the question is this. The question is, if, you know, if you want to simplify the mathematics, that simply means I shouldn't be doing anything else. Honestly, I shouldn't mm-hmm. be writing more books. I shouldn't be, you know, recording this podcast. Uh, I shouldn't be, uh, you know, working on anything related to artificial intelligence. Because honestly, if it comes to my my selfish joy, if you want, I, I know my thousand X, right? So So how do you strike a balance between that? I mean, where does the line reside where you know, is is it is it primacy and recency? Is it, you know, is it I fulfill this first and then the leftover time I allocate to something else? Is it a, a, a ratio? What, what do you do? Well, I'm grappling with it. That's the truth. I'm in the wrestle. And I think that's not a bad posture in life is to be wrestling with it uh, rather than just going along with whatever is the default norm of our times. I don't think it's a healthy choice to be in the, I just do what everybody does, especially now, because I think that there are so many toxic forces that either take for granted, oh yes, family and thousand X, they don't say thousand X, but family, oh, that will always be that. And it's like, no, that you're teaching constantly that that doesn't matter, that 
self-actualization is the top of the hierarchy, that, that, that it's just about you achieving what you want in life and that that's the way to both be happy and also to make the best contribution. It's like this is, we're being taught this constantly and, yeah. and it is literally making people miserable. miserable. I heard yeah. someone, go ahead, no, please, Mo, I didn't mean to. Uh, no, I, I, I was saying miserable while you were saying it too. Yeah, because somebody said this recently to me, and I, I've started doing research to sort of, in a sense, back it up because I want the academic research behind it. But, but they said they said psychologists have found that there's no difference between misery and thinking about yourself, and and so they were suggesting that it literally loads on the same statistical axis. In other words, that the relationship is is identical is the, the, literally the more you think about self, not reflecting about how you're doing in life, but just being self-oriented, selfish, self-centered, uh, narcissistic eventually, like that this equals misery and that they're just the same thing. And, and, and we have now data. I just was uh, listening to an interview with, with, with an author. I can't remember the name of the author, but he's, he's gone back and they finally have enough data to show that starting in 2012, which is really sort of where the, social media and smartphones collided in a, in a sort of a new way. I mean, of course, when the iPhone first came out, there was no social media attached to it. There was no apps attached to it. So what it was designed to do is, of course, very, very different than what it's become. But at 2012, they can show that from that point, the, the suffering, particularly in adolescent girls, the depression, all of this is directly proportional. And of course, all this social media, we talk about it being like, I mean, who designed it? My goodness. And what was the criteria? And what did they believe about the world? And forget the incentives, which, of course, are really, like, really unhelpful. Uh, you know, well, we just want more people to click and be addicted more time, you know, and be hooked. I mean, all of that doesn't help. But I think even their understanding of the human condition is, was, is so questionable. And so then it has literally just led to this, to this suffering in the world. Look, I, it seems to me, that the number of people in the world who are getting the balance wrong in favor of too much family and too much close connection with them and not enough time for other things, what's the, what's the ratio? Do I actually know anybody myself who I think is taking is too invested in the key relationship in their life and not interested enough in the people outside of them? I, I, can, I, I don't know if I can name anybody. Yeah. So the so that's worth considering, right? Like, are we solving? Do we even need to try and solve that problem? Uh, oh, it could get too far in that way. I, I think it's more like this. I mean, I believe each of us has a mission in life, not to select, not even to design, but to detect. I, I think that's right. It's there, and it has to be. This it has to be. You know, like 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 uh, the, the the marble thing, right? Cutting away the marble, and then the the masterpiece is there. Like it's there, and we have to start saying no to the things that we go. Well, it's not that. It's not that. It's not this. It's not the other. And then and then uh, then our real mission uh, unfolds. And, and do I think that that includes more than the thousand X relationships? Yes, I, I I personally do. I feel great mission to be able to reach out and impact people beyond that immediate core? Um, so I think the answer is yes. For a start, mathematically, if you can impact a million Xs, 
then that, of course, adds up to a lot of importance. And they themselves are part of their own families and they have responsibilities there. So if I can help people to be able to invest in what matters in their own world, that that, that makes a big contribution. Nevertheless, if I get to the point, if I ever get to the point, me, I'm just talking about me, nobody else. If I got to the point where I succeeded with, the, with millions and millions of people out there, billions even, and I fail with Anna and with my children. No, that is a, that for me is obviously, you know, like a bill of goods. I've been sold a bill of goods. I have, I've made a fool's bargain. And, and so, and so I think it's, it's how it is about priority. Right? So the word priority came into the English language in the 1400s. It was singular. It was one thing. It was the priorest thing. It was mm -hmm. the first thing. It stayed singular, according to Drucker, for 500 years. So half a millennia later, somebody says, oh, we got so many things that are so important. I think we should just have <laughs> priority. Let's just end an S and, and confuse everyone. Honestly, though, and I don't, I don't even know what the word means now, because how can you have very, very many, very first before all other things, things, right? Like, the whole point of why the word is so useful is that it helps you to what's the priority. And so the priority for me in 2024 is to work in a disciplined way to build routines, rituals, and systems to make sure that my wife and I feel deeply connected, safely attached. And from there, of course, our children from that relationship, because that's the, that's the, you know, that's the most important single thing that we can do to help them also feel safely attached to us. And that's the priority for me for this year. And does that mean that I won't, we won't have this podcast conversation? No. When you get the priority right, when you get the perspective right, things fall into their proper place. And you, you, you know at the margin what you'll do so that, so that if there comes a point where I go, okay, my wife really needs me or even my child really needs me and I have this, this commitment on the calendar, I can get rid of the commitment. I can say no. If somebody comes up, if, if I've designed my life right, when somebody just got a very, very attractive offer to do a keynote a certain date in the, you know, a few weeks from now, we already have a family vacation planned on those that week. The answer is an easy no. It's an easy no because it's something already built there so that you're protecting those relationships in the future so that you're not just reactively making the decision uh, along the way. You know, that's what I'm trying to design. If I can design the system right, then there's still tremendous opportunity to make a difference to other people outside of the thousand X relationships. You know, you, you in a sense, you move into a sort of mentoring role where you say, well, listen, this is what I'm learning. I've got all these things wrong. This is the things that seem to work. Let me share so you can learn on the cheap and design and detect a, a life that, that, uh, that, that also really matters. Uh, so that's kind of how I'm thinking about it. What, what would you say to those who are, a different, are at a different stage in life or at, at a different uh, you know, level of privilege, if you want. I mean, at, at the end of the day, you, you know, think of someone who 
really has to work two jobs, right? Or, you know, three jobs. Think of someone, a single mother who, uh, you know, has to really take care of her children and has no time to go out dating or finding another, you know, person in her life. And, you know, think there, there are so many who don't have the choice to focus on what matters. What would your advice be as they're caught up in just keeping up with life? The first thing I want to say is just like, like I just feel, I feel a lot of compassion in sort of welling up in me as you ask me that question, you know, because it's, I mean, it's really true, right? Like, I mean, if you go back into the 1820s, which I know is a weird place for me to suddenly go in the conversation, but if you go back to the 1820s, we romanticize that period of time. And, um, and, and, and some of that does seem like it was the system built was, was more essentialist, right? You lived at home generally, you worked in nature generally, the, there was no electricity. So when you got home in the evening, you would spend time with each other. The level of distraction was almost zero compared to now. I mean, there's something beautiful about that, some of those things, but life was so hard, so desperately hard for almost everybody just to survive. That part doesn't come through when we look back with our current privileged successful uh, uh, and i mean broadly speaking the success of the whole world now in comparison to that they had no choices at all and we are inundated with choices for the most part for most people now so life has been surviving was everything before we are in a new era but there's so many people who struggle to get the food on the table to pay for a roof over their heads this week. So many people living yeah. paycheck to paycheck. I once coached somebody who was terrified of losing her job all the time. And, and she was really competent. And so I was surprised by it and was like, okay, well, unpack it with me for a bit. Like, why the fear? You, you know, you've kept the job already for years. You, you're, you're competent in it. You're, you're devoted to it. And she said, look, what came out? She said, my parents aren't living. I have no siblings. I'm not married. I have no children. I have no extended family. I really don't have much of a community. There was no, there was no church. She wasn't going to a church. She wasn't going to a, uh, you know, to, to any religious community. She said, I, I'm living paycheck to paycheck. If, if I lose my job, I'm like two weeks from being homeless at any one time. And there's nobody there for me. You know, that's how she felt. Okay. So that's who you're talking about, right? Or at least somebody it's, it's many people like her. In, in, in those situations, I feel that what's essential becomes very different. Yeah, I mean, maybe. So th there was a study that was done in urban cities, and it was of, and it was of single mothers. And it was asking them what their life was before they had a child and afterwards. And what they found was that, is like universally across the researchers, that they just described that their lives suddenly became full of meaning. Their suffering went down. Their sense of, of belonging increased. Like, like actually, even what we would describe, and for good reason, to be a really difficult circumstance, to be a single mother in an urban area, like what, what sounds tougher than that? And, and, yet, and yet the meaning sort of made this significant shift in their... It, that was like a suddenly not having to put think about self all the time and the exhaustion of that and to be able to devote to somebody else itself was was tremendously helpful and so 
I think that what's different isn't what is important. I think what's different is, is how that gets manifest. Yeah. Right. So like when, when my children are young, Anna and I are spending all this time, I mean, Anna more than me, but like, we're definitely team players working together too. You know, you're, you're, you have, you are feeding each child, actually feeding them, you know, putting the food in their mouth. You are like, the activity is different. I don't have to do that for any of my children now. Mm-hmm. So the activity has changed, but not what's not who's important hasn't changed mm. just behavior you know, earlier on in my career right you have a t- it's a tougher set of trade-offs because you've got to just work or you know you're working 40 hours a week and I'm not in control of my own schedule so that definitely was a tougher time but not who's most important it's just well in order to serve my family I this is the I work that, that. do it for sure yeah and so I think that's the shift and 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 I didn't write essentialism or effortless because I think the world Like you don't write a book, like let me just talk about effortless for just one second to make the point. You don't write a book called Effortless because you think the life is effortless. Mm. You write it because you acknowledge that everybody almost all the time is suffering. And is there a way of thinking or operating in the world that will be a little less hard, that it doesn't have to be hard all the time? Yeah. And so really, I feel like I have, I have primarily written these books for the person who feels most disempowered, the person who feels most desperate, that, that they feel they don't have the choices. They feel, they feel like they have to do everything they're doing, that they don't have, as I say, a sense of choice. This is who I wrote it for. It's not, it's not like those people are the afterthought yeah. to me. Yeah. I mean, in, in a very interesting way, I think, I think the, you know, so I, of course, because of, the, of what I do, I get a lot of people you know, I'm so honored that they trust me with their stories and their struggles and their suffering. And, you know, it's, it's, it's quite interesting because you, you, you said two things that I, you know, I normally say not so eloquently, but you know, it's, it's either meaning or suffering, I think is, is very important to understand, right? You, you Mm -hmm. being, you know, a single mother or you being the provider or you being chosen to go through a certain struggle, is actually in a in a way of course suffering but in, in another way it's a privilege because it's either developing you training you making you a better person or because it's about someone else that you care about so you know so th- there is definitely meaning in that i think the the way we frame it in our minds makes a very big difference because if you frame it as you know, I'm stuck with those kids. I, you know, I'm struggling all the time. This is so difficult. It's very different than I love those kids. I want them to be happy. I want to give them part of my life, you know, and they're worth that part of my life. The the other, which, you know, which I always think about all the time and advise people all the time is the idea that the next moment is what matters, right? And it's it's lovely that that you started our conversation by saying everyone is suffering, right? I'm, I'm supposed mm-hmm. to be a happiness expert. And, you know, I tell people and this year is about my book, Unstressable and how to be unstressed and so on and so forth. And, and, you know, I started the year on the first work day of the year, I get 14 WhatsApp conversations at 6 a.m. in the morning, booking my schedule all the way to March 18th, right? <laughs> every single yep. minute of every single day, <laughs> you know, and, and, it's, and it's quite interesting because, you know, I have other priorities like you in, in life. I want to get closer, uh, you, know, uh, you know, to Hannah. I want to spend more time with Aya and so on and so forth. And, and it's, you know, 
it's the next moment that matters because I have to tell you that day I was almost getting into like desperation. Like what, what is this is, you know, but yes, I sit back and I look at it and I say, okay, it's not going to be easy to fix January, but we can now look at, at February and, you know, make sure that March is amazing. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I don't, I think nobody is, is, is helpless. You know, I think if you if you sit down and find your priorities around the next moment and do it right, it starts to be better. It may not solve the challenge altogether, but it's, it starts to be better. And, you know, interestingly, one of the things that I really struggled with is because because I love slow-mo. I love this podcast so much. It's one of my biggest contributions. And at the same time, you know, it is one of my biggest joys to have conversations like this. But it is quite time consuming, especially with my travel, uh, my travel schedule, it starts to interrupt it, it either it interrupts a very, you know, tiring trip, or yeah. if I'm not traveling, it, it it interrupts my creative flow. So, you know, if I decide yeah. that I want to write tonight, I can't because I have to prepare for our conversation and so on and so forth. And, and, and I, I'll, t I'll tell you what my, my finding was, because I have to say, I, I went through all of the 18 full-time jobs I did in 2023, and I took away around nine of them, basically saying, I can't do this. I can't do this. It's not the most effective. It's not the, in the, in the 1000, basically, uh, you know, 1000 X impact or, or importance to me. And when it came to the podcast, I have to say, I was like, you know, weekly is a routine I can't keep. Maybe I should make it once a month or maybe I should stop altogether. You know, there are now 280 episodes, everything's wonderful and so on. And then suddenly it hit me that, no, that's not the answer. The answer is I find joy in it. I might as well make it essential by growing its impact, which is something I normally don't do, right? I normally don't tell people, by the way, subscribe, uh, by the way, please tell people about it. By the way, you know, I, I actually almost dismissively at the end of every episode say, hey, by the way, just do whatever people do on social media just to help me grow this thing. No, this yeah. year I'm actually planning to be very specific about it, to tell my my listeners and my followers to to grow it so that at least every unit of effort I put in it becomes, uh, you know, rewarding enough for it to be essential. You know what I mean? Uh, and and it's not like you know it's not that it's doing bad. It's in the top half percent uh, of the global podcasts. It's you know it's usually in the top five of of well being, but we can reach more. We can do better. You know what I mean? And I think I think what, I, what all of this is to just say, misery is not going to help with anything. You know there is meaning in the suffering that we go through, and the next moment is what matters. So you might as well make the next moment work for you to find meaning or to or to make what you're doing essential or or to break out of what is giving you suffering well you're giving an alternative thing here because okay so i think the most i think the most important idea in effortless is the final third of the book and what it's about is the difference between linear results and residual results okay so what's the difference you can you can identify something. Okay, I, I want the podcast to be. I'm, I'm I've chosen to do a podcast. All right, the, the strategic choice is made. I feel I should continue to do it. So when I come to that moment of decision, should I cut it off, eliminate it? No, something in me feels it matters in its own right, and I need a voice in the world, and I should continue doing it. I mean, I've literally had the process of thinking you're describing. <laughs> 
myself, right? Because it's not, it's non-trivial. I mean, people ever podcast, yeah. right? And, yeah, and, yeah. and 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 breaking through in the podcasting world is not is not directly, you know, that there's no you can't have like a, a viral moment in podcasting, right? It's not yeah. like YouTube. You can't have <laughs> yeah. a viral moment. So so it's a it's a slow burn process. And 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 in fact, like the most important podcasting strategy is to continue, uh, because you know, there's just people do get eliminated along the way. And so actually it's quite a winning strategy just to just to keep going. Okay. But the idea, the difference between linear results and 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 residual results is it's like a 10x strategy because if you just keep on doing the same thing each day, right? It, a linear result is one in which you put effort in today and get a result today and effort tomorrow and result tomorrow. And really, actually, it's quite profound as you start thinking about it because you say, well, a lot of people, you know, are living in a way that they can't get ahead because of this. Okay, so let's yeah. connect the dots between your podcasting aspiration and and response to to, to, to that challenge and, and your question a moment ago about, well, what about somebody who's in a kind of desperate situation? What do they do? So there's an actual example of this in, in, in the book, and it illustrates the difference. So so Jessica Jakeley is a friend of mine, went years ago with a team of people. They went, went, to, they went to Africa and they were there to try and make a difference. So they have an aspiration and they keep meeting these, we would call them entrepreneurs, right, in, in, in the West particularly. But, but at first, they don't really look like an entrepreneur. You know, they're, they're selling food on the side of the road, mm. right? So, so, but that, of course, is entrepreneurship. But they, they get to know one woman in particular and they just met Muhammad Yunus and gone to a training by him. And so they were excited about the idea of the Grameen Bank and microloans. And so at first, when they meet her, they start asking her about, well, how does your business work and so on. And, and she has to sell food today. She yeah. has to physically be there in order for, by the end of the day, for her children to eat, yeah. maybe her. So, right, that's exactly the kind of extremity that you're describing when you say, okay, well, does it change prioritization? Does that change somehow if you're in that kind of extreme situation? And, and so every day she's st stuck in a residual result. She can't get out of it. They said, well, what would you do if you could take some time off? How would you work on your business, not just in your business, so to speak? And, and she said, well, listen, I, I would go and renegotiate my contracts with the people that actually give me the produce. I'd go to the original source cut out the middleman, that would increase my profit, not enormously, but enough that that would enable me to then start to get ahead every day instead of just always being in maintenance. And so they say, well, how much would that cost? And they work it all out and it's a $500 thing. And they're about to just give a $500, but then the Muhammad Yunus thing comes in and they say, okay, well, maybe we can, maybe we can give you this as a loan. And that way, 10 entrepreneurs can be helped, right? Because after you pay that back, we'll find someone else and someone else and someone else. And they, they did that with her. And that's exactly how she got ahead. Somebody helped her to build a systemic solution so that you, the results she's getting are now easier than they were before, right? And, that, and then, so, so making something a little easier can have really profound effects, especially if you build a system that produces results because then you're free to work on something else, a higher level activity. Okay, so that's how that story could end. But there's more to it because that's when they suddenly said, well, if we do it once, what if we, instead of just doing one loan, we could, we could build like a little platform, a website, where other people could also provide loans. 
And we could then expand this way beyond our own income amounts. And this is how Kiva.org was born. Yeah. So I think there are like $1.4 billion of loans now with a 97% repayment. So it's like a completely transformative model. And that's it's, it's blessed a lot of yeah. lives. And it's a system solution, right? Like now there are residual results offering it to many levels. It's residual results for the individual because they can get ahead. It's residual results because it's a loan. So you help many people. It's residual because it's a platform that's been created. So millions of people can give and millions of people receive. That's amazing. That's the power of residual results over linear. So it's not just how much effort you put in. It's not just it's not just ROI, return on investment. It's return on effort. And we want a high return on effort so that you can break through. So now we're coming all the way back to your podcast. You want to break through to the your next level of contribution without burning out or without burning out your relationships, your 1,000x relationships. And so the system matters. Can you build a better podcasting system than the one you've had before? And, and 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 so, you know, the, the question I would put to you, the thought experiment is how can I get 10x results in the podcast with putting in the same amount of effort that I put in last year or even a little less? How can I build a system that does that? And, and, and so you invest all the energy complex. goes into the- I'll, I'll tell you the answer. The, the answer is very straightforward, but it's not my value set. Right. So, so think about it this way. Having a wonderful conversation with an amazing guest is the same amount of effort every time. You can't reduce that. Right. It's three, three, four hours of my time to prep a little to get to know the, the guest and to do the recording. I have to upload stuff and so on and so forth, especially when I'm traveling. Right. There is no change in that. Uh, there is no change in the investment that I have in the editing, Vlade, my engineer, Tudor, my producer and so on and so forth. The most interesting side of this is I could turn this whole thing into incredible clickbaits on the internet. I could market it just like capitalism, but that's not my value set. I mean, an another alternative, interestingly, is to monetize this podcast, right? So if I, if I monetize this podcast, probably make a million dollars a year, and then I can invest a lot of money in that, in a big team and a big fancy studio and so on. But the trick for me is that I stand for something. Right? I stand for, I don't want to be part of that system. I want to be contributing from myself with my listeners to other listeners. In my mind, believe it or not, my genius at the end, at the beginning of the year was like, no, I love slow-mo. As a matter of fact, I'm probably going to start another one that's in Arabic, right? But I'm going to actually start telling our listeners very openly, help me grow this thing. Right? Don't let me go to the capitalist models. Rate it properly. Tell people about it. If you enjoy it, get others to listen to it. Because I think this is what it's all about. The easiest way is to fall in the trap of doing things that you don't stand for. Because honestly, you know, sometimes you feel a little jealous. I feel that a little bit when I'm on social media, for example. I'm, you know, my podcast conversations get listened to 10 million times. My books get sold almost a million times. Mm -hmm. And yet my followers are 142,000, right? And you start to go like, okay, so should I make, shake my hips a little? Because if I shake my hips a little, I'll get another 140,000 for my hips, right? And, 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 the, <laughs> and, the, and the truth is not the, to get another 140. The truth is to be true to your values, right? So here's my hypothesis for you. And it's a, it's a hypothesis because I don't know. But I'm I'm sort of I'm sort of in a similar enough 
question myself, it's hypothesis for me too, which is how do you build a system? Because what you have, this is how I read it, you have pieces of a system. Well, it is a system. Every system is a system, right? You can have an engine, the engine of my car, just because a piece isn't, if I if a piece gets taken out, it's no, it's still a system. Now it's just a system that doesn't work optimally. Mm. And so what I think is that you have a system, I have a system, right? Every every thought leader has some kind of system. And of course you want, of course you want the whole system to be operating on the values that you hold. You don't want a system that violates the values because then it's some other person's system and it and it and it and it, and it, it could be self-defeating because it it takes away from what you care about. Fine. Using within that values, within that set of values, can you build a system that works in a more integrated way so that there's a dynamic equilibrium between the pieces? In my own work, I feel like I have done, I don't know, I give myself like a B or something for the effort I have put into building the system, mm. right? So write a book. Okay, that's that's one thing. You write another book. Okay, so you have the books flowing like you do. So you've got that working. Okay, you've got a podcast. It's flowing. You know, you have some social media. Okay, it's flowing. How do you get it all to work together? That's not a that's not a selfish intent. It's not some mercurial capitalist selfish. That doesn't have to be right. It can still be a capitalist solution that has a set of values attached to it. Of course, those things can be done together. But how can you do it so that the whole system works better. And that to me is the 10, that's to me is the residual result I'm talking about is like, okay, yes, asking people, everyone listening to this, people listening to this don't understand. They don't understand unless they have themselves a podcast, how much of a difference it makes to Mo if you go and actually write a five-star review. You don't understand. And you don't understand how darn well hard it is to get people to do that. They can love the experience and they just don't know that the disproportionate value that that review counts. So of course you ought to go and do that right now. If you thought this conversation was helpful, of course you have to go and tell not just one person, you have to tell 10 people. You have to do that if you think the content is worth sharing or just useful in the world. You have to to do that because that's the, that network effect is the only way it builds. So that's your part. I'm speaking to you directly who's listening to this. Now, back to you, Mo. How can you use this year and probably the year after that to build a system that's the best possible Mo system so that they everything integrates? That to me is the, is the real breakthrough difference. That's certainly what I've been working on and conscious of recently. And, and that gets me excited because every time I invest a, a dollar of time or money, right? Like a, a unit on the system, yeah. on the system rather than in the system. I don't get an immediate reward, but man, I know that something something just improved for my 2025 self. Like my 2025 self is going to yeah. thank me. Absolutely. My children are going to thank me. Yeah. So, so it's like, how do I build the system to work together as perfectly as possible? possible, including the social media, connecting it in an integrated way. I think that's an exciting game. And, and, and I think that is the, that's the difference between the one 
the, the linear. It's so spot on when you when you really think about. It. I mean, we're really thinking exactly about the same things, right? Because yeah. the reality the reality is, of course, I can maximize so many of the efforts. Like like you, each of my efforts call them products if you want, like books is a layer, you know, podcasts are a layer, Uh, online is a layer and so on and so forth, you know, my memberships and online content and so on, but you develop them separately. And, you know, in in a very interesting way, because of the nature of who I am and having so much compassion in me to share a few things that would hopefully reduce a little bit of suffering, I sort of resent the years where I was in the corporate world where I had to sit down and, you know, and and build systems to do business, really, right? I'm telling myself, no, a better use of your time is to finish this book about love and romance. So many people need it or to, right? And it's so interesting. I'm sure you go through the same thing. And and then, but, but I will tell you openly from today's conversation, I think from an essentialist point of view, hmm? I think what's essential for me this year, on top of what you rightly said is the is the one thousand x, I think what's essential is to is to get more mileage from the effort that I not more dollars, don't care, but no, I know what you mean mileage, you want impact. Right? yeah, you yeah. want contribution, of course you do. yeah, and, 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 I, th- and I think you're you you're you very nicely put it because I think one of my biggest assets, believe it or not, is not my books, it's my followers. Right? It's people who believe in the work that I do and who don't actually realize that if I if I you know if they take two minutes and on their time of their time to write a review or to share something with someone, that that thing would actually be as much contribution as all of the four hours I put to record the episode, right? Because at the end of the day, you know, as 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 the whole mission of One Billion Happy was built, it was if, if everyone tells two people and each of them tells two people, then very quickly exponential functions will lead us to a billion happy. So it's interesting. <laughs> well, uh, what you need is, is, for, is for each person to tell five people. You just need to change that every time you share the idea. You go, yeah. every, every, tell everyone five, tell, tell, everyone tell uh, 20 people. 20 people, yes. Don't, don't be no, too but, nice, Mo. Don't be too nice. No, well, it, I, I, what you just said, more mileage, that's the idea of the return on effort. And the difference between linear this one per day it feels so fair you put in effort once you get results once and residual the difference is 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 so great but it's not easy for us to think in residual ways we, we sort of go to sleep each night we wake up in the morning we're re kind of reborn again and it's like i i feel like sometimes i wake up i have to like re align everything again. It's like, okay, now, yeah. now, like, what am I trying to do in my life? And who am I? And where are we? It's like the forgetfulness. <laughs> Did we talk about have... that yesterday? No, we need to talk about it again. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. And so there's, there's something about that, but something about the human condition underestimates the power of something that recurs continually, right? Yeah. So we know this in terms of, okay, if I'm addicted to social media, then then I'm, and I go to social media, even if I'm only going to half an hour a day on all my social media, yes, well, over the li- a lifetime, it's a massive commitment to this Perfect. thing. Yeah. And so we underestimate the power of rep- of this, of a residual system. And, and that's why we understand under under invest in building residual systems is because we think, well, it's just easier for me just to do this thing myself right now. Uh, Like, for example, you you, you just said, okay, so I'm going to suggest to you, 
to record a very specific thing that goes on the end of every single no at the very beginning of every single interview from now on you record it once you're really thoughtful about it what the incentive is to the person listening to write that review to be able to share with people like you think about that very distinctly one time you design it one time and it becomes an absolute default at the beginning you create it every single time you never think about it again that's the kind of thing i'm talking about so you yeah. design it very well once you don't even have to repeat it after that it's already on repeat there's there's i think tremendous power in that kind of you know that kind of leverage well we've covered a lot here we did this was amazing i uh, i am i'm very grateful i i really have learned so much it's so timely interesting how the universe uh, god whatever you believe sends yes. I do believe. You know, sends you the, the information you need when you really put it out there and say, I need it. So, yes, this is the year uh, of less. This is the year of focusing on the thousand X. This is the year of mileage. This is the year of essentialism. I love your work. I think you're amazing. I really am very grateful for what you shared today and so openly. I hope Ava and everyone uh, of of those that you you consider a thousand X uh, will always be happy. I really, you've touched me so deeply and really I'm sure touched so many of our listeners today. Thank you so much, Greg. It was really wonderful. Thank you, Mo. And for all of you listening, yeah, wow. I normally cut conversations short when they are this profound because I ask you to go back and listen to them. This time, somehow, I decided to prioritize myself over you. I was enjoying it so much. I said, I'll keep going and you guys can cut it down into two episodes or whatever, you know, or listen to it again. I, I think there has been so much learned today. The idea of uh, the exponential difference between what matters and what doesn't matter. You know, it, it's not that it's something matters at one X and something at two, something matters at one X and something actually matters at a thousand. And, and I think that differentiation really puts what's essential in mind. You know, the idea of of suffering or meaning that really stuck with me. The idea of the next moment is all that matters. I think really that could change a lot of things. And when you're thinking about the next moment, don't just think of survival. Uh, don't think of just linear, uh, I need to go and do the same thing again the next moment, but think perhaps of a way to make the next moment uh, exponentially better uh, by building systems and uh, and having residual value created. I loved this conversation very much, so I'm going to say it very openly. Please make this podcast worth my effort by sharing it with others, writing the five-star reviews, like and subscribe and hit the little notification button on YouTube. Uh, do whatever it is that you have to do just to please help me uh, share it with more people. Whatever you do this year, I always said 2024 is going to be pivotal in so many ways. It's going to not be an easy year, but it's also a year of transformation for many of us. So whatever it is that you're doing every week, take a little bit of time to slow down. This is the time where you make the decisions that speed you up for the rest of the week. I love you all for listening and I will see you next time.